offering of praise this morning. Our God is worthy. Let's worship him. We praise you, Lord. We exalt you. We lift up our hearts to you. And Lord, as we approach the word of God, we just pray that you would make our hearts humble, our minds open to receive the truth that you have for us. Lord, we can't rightly understand the word without your Holy Spirit creating the conditions in our hearts and minds to receive what's being said. And Lord, this morning, we don't want to be like those who, after hearing the word, leave and forget and don't do it. Today, we want to be hearers and doers. And Lord, it's only your spirit that can accomplish that in us. Lord, on my part, I need you. Or we need you. We need you every hour. And I need you this hour as, I, as we go to the word. And so, Lord, do in me and through me what I couldn't do on my own. Lord, let your word go forth in power today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more time, can we just give him praise? He's worthy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, well, it's so nice to see everybody. Uh, if you don't know who I am, if you're visiting with us, my name is Joel Repic. I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont Alliance Church. Thank you for joining us on this first Sunday of Advent. Um, there's a tradition among Christians all around the world that we're joining in with today, and it's the celebration of Advent. Now, you've already heard something said about it. We have this lit candle over here to symbolize that it's the first Sunday of Advent. Um, it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and we take this time to remember um, how God's people waited for the coming of the Messiah, for the coming of Jesus, and this is a season of longing for his church. It's a season of us looking forward to the future and longing for his second coming. So we are going to do a sermon series over the next four Sundays, and there's going to be a number of us preaching, called Advent Across the Ages. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the Old Testament texts that surround Christmas, some of the Old Testament prophecies that point forward to the coming of Jesus as a baby boy. And I'm excited for this series, um, partly because we've been in the New Testament a lot as a church, um, so it's going to be good to be in the Old Testament some. But also, I think it's so valuable for us to see how God worked throughout history as we look at these Old Testament prophecies um, because they help us to see that there was the one true God, the same one true God working all throughout history. Um, when we understand that God spoke through these prophets hundreds of years even before Jesus was born, it gives us understanding of the unity of the biblical story around the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so, even though there are many stories in the Bible, there's really only one story being told, and it all has to do with Jesus. We were just singing, Jesus be the center of it all. The reason we think Jesus is the center of it all is because the Bible's claim is that he's the center of everything, including human history, including the whole biblical story. So, when we look at these Old Testament texts, it also gives us an understanding of that. Um, when we see these prophecies uttered, through people by the Holy Spirit hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus. It demonstrates the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be the promised Messiah. This is why, as we're going to see, sometimes in the New Testament Gospels, 
the New Testament Gospels will reference these Old Testament prophecies because what they're saying is, look, do you see Jesus is the one that was being talked about for these hundreds of years? He's the promised one, the Messiah. The, the word Messiah just means anointed one. He's the chosen one of God that has been promised to us. And when we see that it's the same God that's been working over all of these hundreds of years with all of the obstacles that are in the biblical story, all the ups and downs and imperfect people and this very messy story of God's work in humanity that we call the Bible, when we see that God still accomplishes his purposes, it assures us of the consistency of God's character. We see, like we're going to see today, that the God um, who is God when Jesus was born is the same God who is God when Jeremiah offered his prophecy hundreds of years before, and he's the same God that we're worshiping today, and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that ought to be an encouragement to us because it means we can build our lives on the foundation of his good character. Amen? So today, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at some different passages, so I'm not going to ask you to stand today. But I want to remind you of a really familiar part of the Christmas story, probably to many of us. Um, after, at the time of Jesus' birth, Scripture tells us that there was a star that appeared in the sky to, uh, to tell that this was happening. And there were magi from the East. Traditionally, we've called them wise men, if you've seen you know, manger scenes. But magi in the East, we don't know much about who these individuals were. In many of the pictures that you see, there's three of them, but that's really just because they offered three gifts. We don't know how many of them came to see Jesus. It could have been a, a, quite a large number. But these are scholars that were probably part of the royal court of some empire somewhere in the East. And at the time of Jesus' birth, they notice a new star in the sky, and they interpret this to mean that a king is being born to the Jewish people. So they decide to make the long journey to go see this king for themselves and to offer to him gifts. So they come, and it's not long before they're talking to a lesser king in the Roman Empire. He was picked by the Romans to rule part of, uh, of the Jewish people, a king named Herod. Now, this is a bad guy. Um, the historical record lets us know that this king Herod was treacherous, violent and paranoid. Um, so paranoid that if you worked for Herod, it was likely that you were going to get killed in not too long. As a matter of fact, he ended up killing his own son. He was into killing the people closest to him, torturing them. And now all of a sudden, these magi, these learned people from the east, are telling him that there's another king in town. Then another king has been born, and where can they find him? This activates Herod's paranoia big time. But he asks some of the religious leaders if they can look back in the prophecies and see where the Messiah was to be born. And they identify a prophecy that mentions the town of Bethlehem, a small town, that this was the place that the Messiah was to be born. And so Herod tells the Magi, you go and find him. By the way, it took them a while to travel to Jesus. So by this point, Jesus may have been as old as two years at this point. Um, I know, you know, we see the manger scene and everyone's there, and that, like, makes a really nice picture and reminds us of all the characters, but there's a timeline to it. So the Magi go to Bethlehem, 
And there they find Mary and Joseph and the baby boy, Jesus. They offer their gifts. But then something happens. They get a dream. And so does the baby boy's father, Joseph, actually. They both get a dream of warning. And they are told that they must flee because it's in the heart of Herod to kill the baby Jesus. So the Magi disobey Herod's orders. They decide not to go back and tell him that they found Jesus. And Joseph and Mary and the baby boy, Jesus, flee, and they head to Egypt. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. And when Herod finds out that this has happened, he is one mad dude. So mad that very sadly, he orders the death of all of the infants in Bethlehem, um, two years old and younger. That's one reason why we think Jesus may have been as old as two years. Now, when historians look at this, and they look at the population of Bethlehem, and they consider how many babies might have been in the town, uh, Bethlehem was a small place, but still, it may have been as many as 10 to 30 babies ended up being slaughtered by King Herod. Now, this is a tragic part of the Christmas story, and it's a sad chapter in Jesus coming into the world. You know, in our church tradition, we've lost this a little bit, but Christians throughout the world have traditionally remembered this event in a worship celebration, uh, or worship remembrance, rather, called the Slaughter of the Innocents. Um, they remember that at the coming of the Christ child, there were a lot of babies that lost their lives because of an evil man named Herod. Now, I think that this has something to tell us about pain at Christmas, about what tears have to do with Christmas. And Matthew gives us a clue because when he tells us this tragic part of the story, he quotes a passage out of the prophet Jeremiah. So it'll be on the screen behind me, or you can turn there in your Bibles. But in Matthew 2, we're going to pick up the story in verse 16, and just read these few verses. It says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we're going to turn to Jeremiah here in just a second. That's from Jeremiah chapter 31, so you might want to turn there in your Bibles as well. But I want to say before we read out of Jeremiah that this is an example of what we would call a prophetic fulfillment by prophetic analogy. Now, this is what I mean by that. There's different ways that prophecy works in both the Old and in the New Testaments, um, sometimes there's just a literal prediction that's given. X, Y, and Z is what's going to happen. In a bit, we're actually going to read one of those literal predictions in Jeremiah. But sometimes what's happening when prophecy is referenced is there's a clue to remember what God had done in the past in a similar situation. And I think that's what is happening for Matthew here. He is thinking back to Israel's history, and he's reminded of what the prophet Jeremiah said at a low point in Israel's history. This is obviously a low point in the Christmas story. And Matthew quotes out of Jeremiah 
to give us a clue about how we should be interpreting these events. Okay, Jesus is born, the promised Messiah is here, and tragically Herod kills all of these children. How are we supposed to interpret that? How are we supposed to understand how God is at work in the world? And Matthew is giving us a clue by taking us back into Israel's history at another low point and asking us to remember what God said then. And I think what he's saying is it's what God is saying now in the Christmas story. He's calling us to remember it. So we're going to read out of Jeremiah 31. Now, if you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, you know that he prophesied at one of the lowest points in Israel's history. By the time he prophesied, a civil war long ago in Israel's history had split the nation into a northern kingdom. I have a map I think we can throw up on the screen. Into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And these two kingdoms did not get along. Both eventually turned away from God, and even though God sent prophets again and again and again to call his people to come back to them, eventually, because they kept ignoring these prophets, God promised punishment to both of these kingdoms. So by the time Jeremiah prophesies, some of this punishment has already happened. The Assyrian Empire has invaded the northern kingdom and decimated it. I mean, destroyed it, killed people, taken people away, totally obliterated the northern empire. When that happened, the southern kingdom of Judah uh, took a deep breath and thought, whew, at least it wasn't us. God is angry at them, but I'm glad he's not angry at us. But little did they know, the storm clouds of the Babylonian empire were beginning to form, and it was not long that as was prophesied, the Babylonian empire invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, killed people, took people captive, and this is at the time that Jeremiah is prophesying. He prophesies right at the end of the kingdom of Judah, right before Babylon invades, and he lives through the invasion, and he prophesies even some after the invasion too. Now, if you read the biblical accounts of what this invasion looked like, of what it looked like for the southern kingdom of Judah to be destroyed by the Babylonian empire, then you understand that this is the absolute lowest point of Israel's history to date. Um, They are humiliated. There is sorrow in the land. There is nothing left. And it wasn't long before where they really thought that they were a strong, thriving kingdom. But now all of that has been taken away. And so most of Jeremiah's prophecies are really rather sad. Um, As a matter of fact, he's kind of known as the weeping prophet because most of what he has to say is really sad. But... In Jeremiah 30 to 33, um, scholars call this, these, these few chapters, the book of consolation. In other words, Jeremiah has prophesied a lot of sad things to God's people, but now, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he moves to comfort them at their lowest points. And it's in this book of consolation that Matthew quotes out of in his story, and I think that's a clue to what God is getting at in the Gospel of Matthew. So he says this. Let's just read the passage in Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This is what's quoted in the book of Matthew. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Um, Some of you may be familiar with the story of Rachel in the Old Testament. You can read about her and her husband in the book of Genesis. But Rachel is the personified mother of the nation of Israel. 
And the reason for this is because as Jacob's wife, she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph ended up being the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, and their offspring ended up populating the northern kingdom that you saw on the map. And her other son, Benjamin, his offspring ended up populating the southern kingdom. So out of Rachel's offspring were people who were in both kingdoms. So she's the mother of the whole nation. All right. Rachel was buried in Bethlehem, which is another reason probably why Matthew thinks of her and thinks of this passage as he's writing his gospel, because she had been buried in Bethlehem. But the mother of Israel is pictured in this passage as weeping. Why? Well, she's weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they have been taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and they have been killed by the Babylonians. Ramah, which is mentioned here, was the place that the Babylonian Empire collected the captives of Israel. They collected them all there before they carried them off as slaves into Babylon. And so the picture that Jeremiah here is having is of Rachel, the sound of Rachel's weeping um, in the country of Israel because her offspring have either been killed or taken into captivity. This is unspeakable pain. So That's what's being described here. But then Jeremiah goes on to prophesy two words of hope in response to Rachel's weeping. One is a nearer word of hope, which I'll explain in a second, and the other is a farther word of hope. So let's read on in Jeremiah 31, verse 16. It says, This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's mourning. You discipline me like an unruly calf, and I have been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. So this is the first word of hope. Jeremiah hears, you know, Rachel's weeping, and in response... By the Spirit, he prophesies this, that the current hardship that they are going through will not be forever. That this will not last forever. Eventually, Israel, the prophet says, will return to their own land. As a matter of fact, they spent some time in Babylon, if you're familiar with the story, but then eventually they did return. And some see, even in our own day, the formation of the state of Israel as as another Um, fulfillment of this prophecy, as complicated as that situation is. So the promise is that Israel return to their own land eventually, and the suffering that they are going through will have a purpose. It's not without meaning. God is allowing this captivity to happen, but eventually his people will return, and when they return, they will be ready to walk in covenant relationship with their God again. The pain will have disciplined them to turn to the Lord so that they can receive his blessing. So the basic gist of this, the prophet is saying, you're going through pain, but it's not going to last forever. Then he prophesies a second blessing, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. So you can jump down to verse 31 in this chapter. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. So this is the second prophecy of hope in response to Rachel's weeping. That God, a time is coming, it's going to be further out, when God will initiate a new covenant with his people. It will not be like the old covenant, which was dependent on God's people keeping the law. Instead, as I said last week, it will be a covenant where God keeps both ends of the covenant himself. He will keep his own promises, but he will make it possible for the people of God to fulfill the promises of the covenant by fulfilling it himself. The blessings that will flow from this covenant will be that God will put his law into the very minds and hearts of his people. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, um, which we can read about in other places in Scripture, that God himself will dwell inside of his people, and God's people will follow the law, not from the outside in, but from the inside out, as the giver of the law lives inside of God's people. We will walk in relationship with God. We'll have direct knowledge and interaction with God. We will know him directly, be able to pray to him directly. And our sins will be forgiven. This is the promise of the new covenant. Well, how was this accomplished? At the cross. It's at the cross that God fulfilled both ends of the covenant. It's at the cross that he took our punishment so that our end of the covenant could be fulfilled and that we could be in relationship with God and experience all of the blessings that I just described to you. And who was it that died on the cross? Jesus, the promised Messiah, which takes us back to our passage in Matthew. So, Rachel is weeping for her children, but there's two words of hope. First of all, this current pain isn't going to last forever, and there's an even greater blessing that's coming in the coming of Jesus. It's a double blessing that he prophesies to this pain. Jeremiah acknowledges the sorrow, but then he gives a double blessing. I was thinking about double blessings. I was trying to think of an example, and I thought, my giant eagle advantage card is a double blessing. <laughs> and this is, this is what I mean by that. If you would see my giant eagle advantage card, um, it's a disaster. I can't believe it still works. Every time I pull it out, though, they say, don't you want a new Giant Eagle Advantage card? I'm like, scan it. It works. It just keeps on going. I mean, you can barely see the barcode. It's, it's an example of suffering. It's a picture of suffering, all right, at Christmas time, okay? And so it's pathetic. And yet, you know, when the scanner hits my Advantage card, there's a double blessing, right? The first blessing I experience immediately. My daughter's baby food is cheaper. They were having a sale this last week, right? So I save money immediately, right, when they scan it. But then, I love this about the giant eagle, there's a double blessing, hallelujah, <laughs> because it means that someday in the future, there's a near blessing and a further one, someday in the future, I'm going to get to pull up to the pump at Giant Eagle Get-Go. Friends, we are right now uh, renovating a, a kitchen, and... Um, and so we bought some gift cards at Home Depot at Giant Eagle, you know. The last two times I've put gas in my car, I paid nothing. Hallelujah. It's a testimony of God's faithfulness, right? It feels so good to put gas into your car and the zeros just stay zeros. You know what I mean? It's a blessing. Okay, I'll stop. So 
It's a blessing. So there's an immediate blessing, and then there's a further blessing. And this is what Jeremiah is saying to his people. There's a blessing that's going to be closer. You're not going to be in captivity forever. God is going to turn this around and bring the people home. You know? But there's a further blessing that's even better. And it's that Jesus is going to come. There's a new covenant. It's going to bring you forever into relationship with God. And I think this is exactly what Matthew is telling us about how to interpret the death of these infants in Bethlehem. You know, there's a very real sorrow in the Christmas story. It's not all glitter and cookies and stuff. There's a lot of sadness, too. A lot of heartache. Now, if you're not in pain this Christmas season, that might sound like a downer to you. You might not want to be talking about sorrow at Christmas time. But if you're hitting the holidays this year and you are sad, this will be a great consolation to you. That there's room for tears at Christmas. That there's room for sorrow. And that it's acknowledged. It's acknowledged by Matthew. It's acknowledged by Jeremiah. I love this really about the whole Bible. You will never find a time where sorrow isn't taken seriously where it's not acknowledged, where God doesn't speak to it. But I think Matthew is saying as he recounts the story, there is a, double, there is a prophecy of double blessing for this terrible situation that's been created by Herod. He's saying there is hope. Matthew is saying that there will be, even though, I mean, just like Old Testament Israel during the captivity, there will be a short-time victory. The baby Jesus will live. He will escape the grasp of Herod. But there will also be a long-term victory that Herod will not stop or stand in the way of the salvation of God's people. I almost hear a little bit of like a taunt in this against the wickedness of Herod. Matthew is saying, okay, the world is, is going to react to the coming of the kingdom with violence and with oppression, but bring what you got because it's not going to be forever. God's going to turn it around in the short term, and he's going to turn it around in the long term. And so Matthew is saying, yeah, Rachel is weeping in Bethlehem from her grave at Christmas. There's sorrow again in Israel, and it's real. But there is a double promise of hope. There's a double promise of hope for God's people even in this place. Okay, so our four questions. Who is God? God is hope in the midst of pain. I'm not just saying he gives hope. I'm saying it's who he is. It's core to his identity. God isn't afraid of your pain. We've been saying this, I feel like, over the last few months, but I think this is something God's just wanting to grasp onto. God's not afraid of your pain. He welcomes your tears. He's not threatened by your sorrow. But he is hope in the midst of it. That is to say that he is the God of our futures. That is to say that when we suffer, he has a future in mind. It's to say, when we say that God is the God of hope, it's to say that he has bound his very future with our futures. That he has tied our future to his. And that there are covenant blessings that will flow even in the midst of the pain. Now, if that's who God is, well, then who am I? Well, if God is the God of hope, then it means in the midst of the pain, if he's hope in the midst of the pain, then it means that I am hopeful in the midst of the pain. It means that I have hope. It, it means even on my worst day, 
when the tears are flowing, when I can't see my future, because I know who God is and because my identity has been attached to his, because I am bound to him forever, it means that God's future is the same as my future. Guys, God has a pretty good future. Think about it. God has a great future ahead of him. There's no question for this. God doesn't have these like bad days. You know what I mean? Like, there's no question. You know, in 100 years, is God going to make it? Is there going to be enough money? Is there going to be, like, all of these things we worry about? God's future is looking pretty good. The forecast is looking pretty good. And guess what? His future is ours because we've been attached to him. And it's why we can be hopeful even in the midst of the pain. So what is God saying to me then? You know, when Rachel is mourning, when Bethlehem is weeping, when it seems like there's no hope, what is it that God is saying to me? Oh, my daughter's looking at me. She's so adorable. I can, like, barely take it. All right. What? It's very distracting during the sermon. Um, <laughs> what, is, what is God saying to me? Well, I think there's a number of things that God is saying to me. If I am hopeful, if that's my identity, I'm not talking about hope as an emotion. I'm saying this is a fact. This is my identity because of the cross. Well, if I am hopeful, then it means that I can fully enter into my pain. We were talking about this a few weeks ago. See, the only reason that the biblical writers aren't afraid to fully enter into the pain, the only reason why Jeremiah is willing to say Rachel is mourning and she refuses to be comforted and, and is willing to acknowledge that pain is because in the back of Jeremiah's mind, he knows that God is a God of hope. See, it's hope that allows us to fully enter into our pain in the present. It's the promise that something is coming that's greater, that lets me be hopeful now. It's this uh, resolve that builds into our soul that that gets built into our soul by the Holy Spirit that says the weight of my future glory is going to weigh out past. It's not even going to compare to my present suffering. What's coming is weight. Am I preaching to somebody? What I, what's coming, what's coming is much greater than where I'm at now. I may shed tears, but it's not the whole story. I may shed tears, but this isn't going to be for always. And you know what that lets me do? It lets me shed the tears. It means I don't need to be afraid of the tears. It means I can let them come because this is part of it. You know, we spend so much of our time trying to numb pain and avoid pain, and there's all kinds of ways that we do that. very often leads us into sin, but there's all kinds of religious ways that we try to numb our pain too. You know, we just want to turn church into the next drug right, to numb what's hard, you know, to numb what's difficult. But I'm telling you, if you do that, you'll be let down because there's better drugs out there than church. <laughs> you, know what I mean? you know what I mean? You won't be using church for very long, <laughs> <All right? laughs> Seriously, listen, there's something, there's something deeper that God wants to do in us by putting hope in us. It means that we don't have to run from the pain all the time. See, I can go through the pain of today if I know that there's hope tomorrow. We get so surprised sometimes that the coming of the kingdom of God is often accompanied by terrible pain. See, it wasn't just that Jesus came. It's that when he came, that kingdom was clashing into another kingdom that had found its manifestation in a wicked state 
that ordered violence against the kingdom of God. And this pattern plays out in history over and over and over again. The reaction of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light will very often be violence. This is how the kingdom of darkness responds. God didn't kill those babies. A wicked king did. Herod did. But what he was reacting to was the coming of the kingdom of God. And so we pray for the kingdom, and we think that it's just going to show up, and we're going to have just the serene nativity scene there. But we forget that in the Bethlehem that that nativity scene represents, there were mothers weeping uncontrollably because the incoming of the kingdom, the invasion of the kingdom of God, it's inbreaking, created this conflict, and there were casualties. I mean, too many Christians who are surprised, needlessly surprised, that when the kingdom of God breaks in, there's often a backlash. That there's pain that results. But I'm telling you, there is. There just is. Again and again and again in the story of God, which we call the Bible, when he moves to bless, it often creates a mess. And it's not, I didn't even plan that. I'm saying so. It's not even, it's not even, it's not even like his fault. It's that, it's that things are such a mess here. It's just that as, as a human race, we so lost what it means to live right and be in right relationship with each other and right relationship with God that when the real thing breaks in, very often humans can't help it but respond in these negative, violent ways. And so what it means, even at Christmas, the inbreaking of the kingdom is a war. We're in a war, friends. And listen, they fight with violence. Babylon will always fight with violence. We fight with love. And the Christmas story means... What's getting prophesied here is even though this inbreaking is accompanied by all this mess and tears, God is still going to overcome. He's going to overcome in the short term. He's going to overcome in the long term. There's hope even on the worst day of the Christmas story. And this means that we can keep stepping forward even in the midst of the pain. I do feel like in my spirit this morning that some of you need to hear this. Some of you have taken steps of faith for the kingdom of God. And what has come back at you is the violence of Babylon, is the mess. Family members are reacting, and relationships are out of sorts, and all this stuff. You know, at some point, one of my spiritual mentors told me, it used to be when that pain came to me, I felt like I had to stop everything. You know, I felt like I had to, like, give up or slow down. Or whatever. But I think God wants you to hear this day. You keep taking a step forward. You just keep going. This is what it's like when the kingdom of God breaks in. This is what happens. The angel appears to the magi and says, you just keep going. You just don't even pay attention to Herod. You just go back another way. It appears to Joseph. You better get up. You better take Mary and the child to Egypt. Get your feet moving. Don't get paralyzed in fear. The kingdom of God is breaking in. So you're experiencing the pain. Well, that's what happens all the time. Just keep taking a step forward. Faith-filled steps by the power of the Holy Spirit. So secondly, if, I, if I'm a hope-filled person, right, because God is hope and I'm a hope-filled person in the midst of the pain, then it also means this, that I will find strength in the hope of a better tomorrow. I'm talking about that short-term blessing, scanning the giant eagle card at the, at the register and getting the immediate savings. See, 
there's a double blessing here, and it has to do with timeline. And God is saying there's a blessing that's going to be near, and there's going to be a blessing that's going to be further. I, I also meet a lot of Christians that have given up on the nearer blessing because of the pain. So it's like, well, I know I'm going to get it in the kingdom, but nothing's going to happen now. And so what do we start to do? We start to curse our days now. Well, this is going to be forever. It's going to be this way until I die. My family's not going to get restored. I'm going to have this sickness. I'm not going to, whatever it is, we start to curse our present and just wait for the second blessing. Listen, the second blessing is where everything gets fixed, you know? God, in the fullness of his kingdom, he's going to fix all of this stuff someday. But I think there is a kind of hope that he wants to rise up in us that allows us to take hold of the blessings that God has for our tomorrow, right? That maybe this won't be forever. He's, what does Jeremiah say to Israel? You're going into captivity, and there's a new covenant coming. Most of you aren't even going to live to see that new covenant, but you are going to see God at work in your lifetime. You're going to see God at work in your present. You're going to see him start to restore. Your children are going to return to the land because this isn't going to be forever. See, this amazing thing about hope, when we hope for what God is going to do in the future, we begin to enjoy it immediately in the present. I start enjoying my vacation the moment it's scheduled, right? And it could be like a year away. But just because it's scheduled in the far distance... I begin to experience it in my work week in the present, right? It's like, oh, I can work another day, you know, because I have a vacation coming, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of, we start to experience those things right away. But then this, that if I'm a hope-filled person, it's also true that I will take hope, I will find strength in God's eternal purposes as well. Because, listen, I'm, I want to inspire faith in you today to believe that what you're going through right now might not be your whole life. It might not be forever, you know? But I also want to say this, that if at the end of your life, there are still things you're waiting for, still things that didn't change, there is a kind of hope in God that says, you know what? This is all going to get worked out for eternity. Eventually, God's covenant promises mean that my tears are going to be wiped away that my body is going to get healed, that I'm going to be God's child and he's going to be my father forever and we're going to walk together in that way, that all of that is true and that gives me hope for today too. And lastly, I just want to say this, if God is hope and we are hope-filled, people that we can be hopeful in the midst of our pain, then it also means this, that we can join with Jesus in being overcomers in the mission that he has called us to. See, I think that's why Matthew says what he says, why he quotes Jeremiah. It's a clue to the story. He's saying, isn't this awful that Herod reacted in this way and that these children died? But he quotes Jeremiah to say, but it ain't over yet. <laughs> it's not done. The mission is going to be accomplished. This boy is going to live. And then he's going to heal. 
He's going to deliver. He's going to live a perfect life. He's going to go to the cross to offer the sacrifice. And it doesn't matter what's brought against him. It doesn't matter what a wicked state brings against him, what a wicked king brings against him. It doesn't matter what the devil brings against him. It doesn't matter how people fail, how they mess up. God's eternal purposes are going to make it in the end. That's a Christmas message worth celebrating, right? That God's kingdom purposes are going to make it in the end. See, it doesn't matter what's thrown at us. The world will always throw stuff at us. This is what it's throwing here, you know, is this violence. But the world is always going to throw stuff at us. As a matter of fact, listen, it's going to throw stuff at you because it's not the kingdom and because the kingdom is invading. As a matter of fact, look, it's okay to love your country. But if you can't see the ways that, that whatever country you come from is reacting to and attacking the kingdom of God in a negative way, then you're conflating one thing with another, and they're not exactly the same. See, it's okay to be part of a political party, and it's okay to know what you agree with, but if you can't articulate the ways that your political party is in disagreement with the kingdom of God, then you think your political party is the kingdom of God. And it's not. It's not. And so I think there's this alertness that's required in God's people to say, even in the best situations, I could say it about church, right? If you can't see the places where your church has not yet attained the ideals of the kingdom, then you think your church is the kingdom of God, and you're going to be sorely disappointed, right? And so I think it requires this alertness to say, look, the kingdom is invading But there's this war happening, but it doesn't matter how messy it gets. It doesn't matter what's thrown at me. It doesn't matter what comes out of Babylon against me. It doesn't matter what the devil is trying to take me down and doing. The kingdom of God, God's eternal purposes are what's going to make it, right? And somehow in his sovereignty, if the worship team could come forward, somehow in his sovereignty, even the pain that I'm going through today is going to be used for God's purposes tomorrow, right? He's so sovereign that he can even take this stuff and he can use it for the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Friends, if you're going into the holidays and you have tears to shed, I just want to say this, God bless you. See, the last question is, what am I going to do about it? Well, listen, if you you are hurting this Christmas, here's what you get to do even though you're hurting. You get to hope. You get to hope. Rachel is weeping. There's a sound of crying in the land. Things are falling apart. But you get to hope this Christmas because God has prophesied to your pain a double blessing. (laughs) And if you're hitting this Christmas and things are pretty good, then you know what you get to do? You get to protest hopelessness in the lives of other people. That's what you get to do for them. How do you protest hopelessness? Well, you bring the future realities of the kingdom into people's present. How do you do it? Well, if someone's hungry, you feed them a meal because that kingdom's future is a banquet. Someone's thirsty, you give them a drink because that's what the kingdom looks like. You get to bring that. When you serve people, you're bringing the future reality of the kingdom into their present. You get to buy Christmas gifts. They're supporting renewal, (laughs) you know, locally and globally. All of that is bringing the future reality of the kingdom into the present. You get to lay your hands on the sick. 
and ask for healing. Because when you do, you're asking for the future blessing of the kingdom to come into the present. You get to be a hope-filled presence in the lives of hopeless people. Rachel, you're weeping, but I'm going to stand next to you this Christmas because it's not over. God has prophesied a double blessing, and I'm going to stick with you in it. Amen? You'd stand to your feet.